0: You will never train a St. Bernard to win at the Greyhound track. It's not possible. You will break the dog. So some people do this. They think, oh, I'm going to be the greatest Olympic lifter. And they've got deep hip sockets. It's not going to happen. They're going to need hip replacement. The great athletes obviously were touched by the hand of God. They've chosen the sport that matches their body. And then they build training capacity.
1: You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Dr. Stu McGill. I'm so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. I've been following your work for many, many years, probably 15 years now, maybe 17 years. And it's just so nice to sit down with you and ask the questions that have been kind of going around in my head for a long time. And I asked all my, all my trainer and practitioner friends, if you could sit down with Stu McGill and have dinner with him, What would you want to ask him? And I got a barrage of emails. So all the things we're going to talk about today is kind of a collection of what's going on in my head and what some of my friends have also been wanting to ask you. So I was curious to you, what does it mean to move well?
0: Well, good morning uh, to you, uh, Emily. First of all, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire on that one. and, and uh, we'll, we'll have dinner. Uh, uh, just before we got on the air, I mentioned my son lives in Manhattan. So next time I visit, we'll uh, at least go out for a coffee yeah. and uh, have a, a, a nice discussion. But what does it mean to move well? It needs a context, Let's start with the scientific principle that all health systems in the body require movement for optimal health. However, there is a governance on all of this, and I call it the tipping point. So consider a vitamin, choose a vitamin, say like vitamin D. If you're deficient, you're sick. So you take a supplement or get in the sun or do an intervention to optimize the exposure you optimize your health. But if you get too much vitamin D, it then becomes a poison. So it's a U shaped function with an optimality to it or a tipping point. But think of every context and every component of movement, and it fits exactly the same principle. So the person, their injury history, who their parents were, all influence their particular tipping point, And it's the role of the clinician to find the best movement that keeps them under the tipping point, that gets them as close as they can to their goals, realizing that If you are closer to the tipping point, so say you're an athlete and you're peaking for an event, you want optimal strength, speed, mental acuity, and everything else, that is a fleeting moment. You can have that optimality, but if you stay there too long, you will get sick or injured or overstressed or whatever it is. So what does it mean to move well? It's a fabulous question, but there is the science that governs that discussion, and the end of it means it's a little bit different for everybody. But that's the beauty of what we do; it's it's never boring. And
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, do you think that's because we all have a different starting baseline? Right? Some people are just getting off the couch. Some people like many of the people you've worked with are, have been training for many years. And so to move well is going to be different for everyone because our kind of our starting baseline is different.
0: Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. So the scientific process that we would follow to converge on what's the best movement for them and the starting point is first of all, when we're interviewing them, we'll say, why are you here? What are your goals? Now it will come out that they've been a couch potato and their goal is to compete in whatever the masters, or let's say they want to run the New York marathon. Well, (laughs) what you would need to do as a clinician or any clinician would need to know what are the demands required to run the New York marathon. Now you have a context, go back and assess your client and say, well, we know you need this. What do you currently have? And we train what you don't have in the context of what is possible. So, if they have some substantial injury history, that will make your job a little bit more interesting. So, anyway, there's the process or framework that we would use to guide that convergence on how to start someone off.
1: So, you and I, and I think a lot of practitioners, give corrective exercises to you know, build this baseline of good form. I've heard you use the word impeccable form through movement. And I had recently had Dr. Craig Liebenson on muscle medicine, and I asked him, what does it mean to move well as well? And he was kind of thinking, you know, how much does mechanics really influence pain? And his thought process was that there's this biopsychosocial and potentially the the Mm -hmm. psychosocial aspect of pain is more important than the mechanics factor, which I thought was really interesting because I am very much of the thought process of give the corrective, get the form dialed in, and then load it to kind of imprint that muscle memory of the movement. And so I was curious because I know you are very much of building the form, giving correctives, the big three. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that.
0: Well, that's a huge question and I'm gonna riff on it just a little bit so it'll be a little bit of a longer answer. Yeah. First of all, since Dr. Levinson mentioned my name and, and Backfit Pro, which is our, our yes. company, I will have to say I, I was a little bit disappointed. In that the characterization of backfit pro meant corrective exercise and really only mechanics and and you know as I said my my heart sank when I heard that phrasing, but maybe it was just at the instant in time it was a little bit of an inappropriate wording that we all speak. It appears that there's a, a dichotomy that forms on social media, or even a trichotomy between mechanical, psychological, and and social and is one better than the other. But it's interesting when clinicians work with us in the clinic, they'll say at the end of the session, wow, that was the most biopsychosocial interaction that we've ever seen. Not realizing that when we set aside an appointment, it's three hours long. The first thing we say to the patient or the athlete or whoever it is, its it, it Tell us what you are expecting here, and now tell us your story. And we've done this for over 30 years, long before the this, the, this new pain science movement has started, as if that, that's new. So this is a little bit of a misimpression. So can I explain our approach then to, to clear up this, this misimpression? M- yeah,
1: please. Okay.
0: Well, BackFit Pro, which is our company, is not a collection of corrective exercises. It's not the big three or impeccable form. It is all of that, but it's so much more. Really what BackFit Pro is, it's a framework. So first of all, over the past 40 years, I was a professor at University of Waterloo for 30 of those. It was simply to build the strongest foundation that we could in our understanding of how the spine works and the various pathways to pain including a differential diagnosis. I ran two different laboratories and also a experimental clinic over that time. So we got to test different protocols with different types of patients. We measured the outcome on every single one of them. I know exactly our score, et cetera. The, the second part of the whole framework is every person gets a, a very, very thorough assessment that allows us to converge on a precise understanding of their pain mechanism. And we achieve that almost all of the time. The third part is then we match an approach that uh, involves addressing the cause. Now, they've been to 12 different clinicians and they've been conditioned to fail. We're the first person that's listened to their story and oh, the Emily, the stories I could tell you, it would break your heart. And I'm going to tell this story Not to be sensational, but to show you that social context matters. And I think we've always paid a lot of attention to it. We had a uh, a Hell's Angels mama. She'd just gotten out of jail. Her husband was murdered at the time that she had to go to jail uh, as well. I ended up giving some opinions on on this particular case for a variety of reasons. But anyway, I then described to her what her mechanism was, and I said, you can address this lax joint. She'd lost a little bit of disc height, which allowed it to bulge and and experience micro movements under different tasks, triggering uh, radiating pain. And uh, I showed her how to create a motor pattern that immediately took away the pain. And then I said, I'd like you to do these floor exercises. And then I showed them to her and she looked at me and this was about three quarters of an hour into the session so she was feeling a little bit more comfortable at this point she says i can't do that and i said why she said if i did that exercise on the floor at home that would trigger my husband or or this new boyfriend that she had to basically attack her in a sexual way and she says i can't do this and you know you have no idea what the social context is for some people. But anyway, you know, this idea that we're only corrective exercise, if I can't address that enormous social impediment for that patient's success, then it doesn't matter what the exercise is anymore. And then this whole idea of uh, there's a separation between the psychological and pain. We've never seen it that way. What we've measured is is if you can take a person's pain away, their psychological dissonance often cleans up. It's not necessarily the other way around, although it could be. But Mm. the the real issue is what's cause and effect here? The assessment will show if it is primarily a psychological cause, that is the first line of interventions. But, But if it's primarily they have an open fissured posterior disc bulge, and when they bend forward or sit for half an hour at their computer or in the car, their foot then falls asleep. And now they have tremendous psychological dissonance because of that. If you address the cause, which is purely mechanical in that particular case, the psychological takes care of itself. I was chair of our department at the University of Kinesiology, which had separate sub departments in it physiology biomechanics, neuroscience, and a whole psychosocial department. We've been well aware of the interactions of all of these things, as I said, for the 40 years that I was uh, at the university. Our interview room, you you might be interested in because it won an architectural award in the university architecture uh, universe. Not only did I use this interview room, but the psychologists, the sociologists, the exercise adherence people, the cancer people all used this room. The patient would sit in front of a fireplace. The clinician would sit off to the side at 45 degrees, all laid out to create comfort and relaxation so that for the very first time, this patient felt comfortable enough to reveal and talk about things What were the impediments that that caused the failures? And whether it was, you know, one of my colleagues in quite a different area. the, the, The process was somewhat the same. But anyway, I know there's this huge emphasis now on cognitive behavioral therapy as a intervention, which I don't have an issue with because I think we've been very cognizant of this for a long time, as I've mentioned. But what's happening now is there's not a sufficient assessment. And clinicians are jumping to the conclusion that just cognitive behavioral therapy and not mechanics is the way. Well, here's the thing we didn't get patients before on antidepressants. We got them on pain analgesics, but now they're coming in on antidepressants. Some express suicidal thoughts because. Without the assessment, someone has given them this discussion, if you will, that they're magnifying their pain or that there are other components to their life leading to their debilitating back pain. They feel dismissed or worse yet, they then interpret that, that the pain is in their head. They can live with back pain psychologically. It's not nice, but they can. What they can't live with is the thought that they're crazy. And it's that that is so destructive. And so there's something that in some patients is going horribly wrong right now. And uh, it didn't used to be. So anyway, I I only see the the failures. So if someone gets better with, with a cognitive behavioral approach, that's fabulous. I would never see them. But of the patients that I see, they're now coming without a sufficient assessment. And the dissonance that they're showing up with now is something that we haven't seen before. So there's quite a big riff on your question, but I'll just conclude this whole psychosocial discussion with, here's a thought, and maybe you want to uh, comment on that. We're talking about a continuum here that generally personal traits and genetics loads the gun. That's the predisposition to injury and some of these other elements. But it's mechanics and physical exposure that pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. Then it's the whole psychosocial milieu that modulates the response. And there's been a rich literature on this. I think a lot of people are ignoring that literature that exists. And that's how we see it. And that's what guides our assessment, but we will use whatever we need to, to address what the assessment shows is, is cause, not the effect.
1: Do you think the lack of a thorough assessment is maybe one of the big flaws in terms of private provider management in terms of low back pain?
0: Yes, absolutely. That's the key to it all. The assessment will show what the mechanism is. Now people misinterpret that. Saying the mechanism, oh, it's mechanical. No, the mechanism could be a psychological or a social impediment, of course. But it's just a tiny bit more than that. There's not much of a check and balance in the system. Mm -hmm. So when a clinician sees a patient and the patient doesn't come back, the clinician probably thinks the patient was cured. Not so. The patient didn't come back because they were made worse. But there's no accountability where that patient can then say, no, you made me worse. The public doesn't know that, nor does the clinician. But follow-up uh, is very humbling for, for many clinicians. And if they would keep their score, and then uh, they'd be able to justify just how good they, they really are. So that's the second biggest flaw after the lack of an assessment.
1: I think as a practitioner, it sometimes feels difficult to wear many hats especially when you're starting to dive into the psychosocial aspects. And sometimes it feels like, okay, do I have the resources to hold the space for that? So for example, your, your hell's angels woman, right. To, is it, you know, do you co-treat or refer out or is it just making that person feel like they're, they're feeling seen and they feel trust and they have confidence as you as a provider you know, especially maybe for the, like some of the people who are providers that are newer, like maybe they just graduated. It, sometimes it feels like even for me being in the practice for only 13 years, it's like things get churned up and it's like, okay, how do I hold the space for that and address the biomechanical? And you know what I mean? So.
0: Well, I know exactly what you mean. And this is what sets apart the elite clinicians, I think, I mean, it's taken me 40 years, but I have a Rolodex just to show you how uh, old fashioned I am, but I have my family of clinicians that I send and refer to. Say I have a person with a torn muscle in the erector spinae. We've given them some time off. That was not effective. However, I do know that a injection of PRP and perhaps some other components in the cocktail will be the secret sauce that really propels that torn muscle. I don't have those skills, but I have a colleague that does if i have a heavy psychological issue or a social issue i mean that woman that we just spoke of i can tell her that she can't expect the mechanical elements of her back pain to be addressed any other way than to physically address them so she's going to have to do that however she now needs help to find a safe place to ensure that she does those now I can recommend a counselor to her, and I have those in my Rolodex as well. And and these are around the world because our clients fly in uh, from around the world. So uh, you know I have my people who add mobility. I have my people who add stiffness and stability. So anyway, I'm sure you you have your Rolodex, or you yeah. probably have a cell phone with all this <laughs> on in your contacts.
1: <laughs> we have a Google spreadsheet, so it's yeah. so it's having a community of probably like-minded providers that can give the support that the patient needs.
0: Absolutely. And, and of course, in my world, which uh, very much of it has to do with uh, restoring athleticism and elite athletes, yes. I have all of my performance coaches as well that really know the sport. And I can create the foundation to restore their tra- training, hopefully, uh, not always, but hopefully, and then turn them back to the uh, master at restoring them for their particular sport. So yeah. I have all of the performance people as You're well. You're
1: quite the Rolodex. <laughs> I, I, well,
0: it, I, I do, actually. I, <laughs> I, I did do a podcast one time on that Rolodex. and. Uh, There was a lot of uh, editing that had to be done because uh, (laughs) afterwards I realized I really can't reveal.
1: (laughs) 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 So in the clinic for us, we always start with like when we're starting, once we've done, you know, the sit down and the history and the intake and our movement screen and, you know, neuro and really not the red flags, we always start with the breath. Can you describe to us and the listeners how you would cue an ideal or optimal breath of someone that is at rest.
0: Yes. Well, as you've probably guessed, I try and create every answer around a scientific principle. Mm -hmm. Then I riff on how it actually translates to the spectrum of the population. So the principle I think you're talking about sort of what we would call as belly breathing or yogic breathing and and that kind of thing. My question with that is, does it translate? So if you had an NBA basketball player who was assigned to box out Shaq O'Neal to not get a rebound, how translatable do you think the yogic breathing would be in that situation? Because I'll tell you, it doesn't. Um, No, it doesn't. What we've measured is you must train that particular athlete to fulfill that particular task. They have to learn to breathe behind the shield. I know you're a strong first trained person and you know what I mean there. So there's a certain amount of dedication of those torso muscles to supporting the spine, supporting the torque and holding your position because Jack O'Neill is going to move you if you don't. So you teach the diaphragm to become the athlete pumping up and down inside a stiffened thoracic cylinder so there's an example where breathing at rest it it really wasn't translatable and we we wouldn't start there with an nba basketball player we put them into a side plank now they have to dedicate the oblique psoas, quadratus lumborum to holding the side plank now breathe heavily and that teaches the diaphragm to breathe and and contract and relax inside the cylinder. And that's what is translatable. But now I'm going to tell you the opposite side, which is so much fun. You may have heard of Clayton Skaggs. He runs the Institute for Human Performance in St. Louis, but he was also the director of performance for the St. Louis Cardinals, which was a little baseball team that won the World Series a couple of years ago. Well, that year that they won, plus the year before, we were doing a study on them, not only the major league team, but three farm teams. Clayton and his staff spent several hours with every single player who wasn't a pitcher, measuring their fitness profile, how they moved. We were talking about movement quality and that kind of thing. Quite a few different parameters and and some breathing parameters as well, which if you know his work, it's important. And then for the next two years, we followed all those players. We had 94 or 96 players, I forget. And then we measured who got injured over the next two years of the four players who got a back injury. You're going to think this is unbelievable. We were able to go back and look at their pre fitness profiles and how they breathe and and all the rest of it. And we were able to predict the four who had a back injury over the next two years. More impressively, we were able to predict the 92 who did not get injured. Now. What were the variables that showed up in the algorithm? So this was a data mining exercise, obviously. What turned out to be important, the first two won't surprise you. It was the ability of core control, appropriate stiffness, with hip mobility. And that unleashes athleticism, as you know. The third element was the breathing skill in quiet breathing. So before I said in basketball, it doesn't seem to translate. Now I'm telling you in baseball, it was part of the predictor of uh, who did and did not sustain a back injury. So isn't that surprising?
1: Yes, and I've also heard you talk about how, like the the really the the, the greatest in the world, they learn to build tension quickly, and then they learn to relax, right, and ah. get out of that tension equally. Which I think kind of translate to like what you're talking about is maybe it was one of the variables not only their breath but also like an abdominal brace.
0: Uh, well that came in the into the core control aspect. Yes. Core
1: control aspect, yes. Yes.
0: However, what I think you're talking about is ballistic movement. So then we get into quite a different athletic skill for example, take a uh, tennis serve. Let's just use the example of Venus, because I remember watching her play one time and the announcer, the color announcer said, oh, Venus is intimidating the opposition today. She's grunting loudly. And I thought that is not why she grunts at all. Why does she? Well, what we measured in several top athletes When you do this and all I can, I know this is a a radio sound podcast, but I'll try and do this. Okay. So you get the idea of what I just did. I had to activate the abdominal wall to get a guttural effusion of the air out, the power breath. Now, what did that just do? If I try and create proximal stiffness, if I stiffen down my core, I get more miles per hour in my arm into the tennis racket because the muscles that cross the shoulder, distal to the shoulder, they create arm velocity. But proximal to the shoulder, they bend my rib cage towards the joint. That's an energy leak. That's unwanted. So, if I can stiffen down proximally, 100% of that muscle activation goes to the distal athleticism. So, proximal stiffness creates distal athleticism. It actually puts a few more miles an hour on the ball in the tennis serve. So, when she goes, what that does, it creates what we call active expiration. It super drives the intercostals, the abdominal wall to create even more stiffness, more proximal stability, so that you get more distal power to the arm and racket. So that is a pulsed breath. If that Helps you a a little bit, which is entirely different from, say, a power lifter who then has to stiffen the cylinder of their core because if they bend their core when they're pulling a heavy load, that's an energy leak as well. You want the hips to extend and the knees to extend, uh, not to lose bending the spine. So they hold their breath on average, to about 70% of full tide, and then they lock it down and they don't breathe because if they did breathe, they'd lose stiffness and they would actually increase the risk of the spine buckling. Now, the Olympic lifter is an entirely different animal yet again, you know that they do not bend their spine and it is a hip extension with very high acceleration of the load. And if they, they allowed their segments to not be stiff it would be like uh, pushing rope instead of pushing a piece of steel they want steel and only move at the joints to eliminate the uh, energy leaks you use the term abdominal brace Mm -hmm. let's take just a patient now who has pain and i ask them to do a heel drop test so they're standing in front of you and they just go up on their toes and bounce on their heels Now you wouldn't do that to an osteoporotic 75 year old client but you might do it for for a 20 year old who wants to play pickup basketball with their kids do the heel drop test and they'll say oh yeah there's my pain all right you combine that with some shear tests and you figure out they have some micro movements so you'll say i'm going to push my fingers laterally into your oblique muscles now push them out don't suck them in push out now repeat the heel drop and they might say you know you just took my pain away great there is an appropriate brace that is tuned, not too much, not too little, just to be sufficient to engineer out their specific micro movement. But the patient may well say, you know what, my pain is worse when I do that abdominal brace. Mm. That shows they don't have the compressive tolerance to handle the compressive cost associated with turning on the abdominals because there's a compressive cost to build that stiffness. So then I might say, Leave your abdominals alone. Stand tall and anti-shrug. Pull down with your pecs and your lats. Now repeat the little heel drop. And they'll say, oh, my pain is gone. So it's not necessarily an abdominal brace, but it is a strategic stiffening somehow, finding the technique that matches that particular person's tolerance and uh, injury mechanism. So breathing, there's pulsed breathing, there's no breathing. If we're going to talk marathon running, we're going to talk about breathing and training to the stride cycle. I mean, breathing is a, a huge discussion. Yeah. But uh, anyway, there's there's a little bit of a, a start on it. But I thought, in terms of belly breathing, I just gave you two high-performance athletic examples where we would clearly discuss either side of the coin.
1: <laughs> I love that. So. Even just like, cause it's so nuanced, right? You just gave like four different examples, which is, I love, you know, I think of like the population of women, right. Who maybe have been told to suck in right. And skinny up and skinny up our waistline um, our whole life. What do you, what do you tell that woman to, to start to kind of access, you know, that area that has been. Sucked in for probably decades.
0: (laughs) Well, it it, of course, it depends on the assessment. Yes, of course. If 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 there's pain involved, that is king. What is the cause of their pain? And what would be the most appropriate intervention? So if they're having periodic bouts of incontinence, first of all, I I'm not the person. So that's out of my realm. However, I know occasionally people have gone after me a bit and say, oh, McGill, your exercises are, they have some, some of them have isometric elements. Uh, This will cause pelvic floor dysfunction and incontinence in women. I say, really? I've had Not one incident, because I've followed up with 100% of the patients we've ever had, not one where we've caused incontinence, we've done precisely the opposite. The strength that we give them has reduced their incontinence, not in everybody, but uh, certainly that's the way the uh, results are, are biased. But uh, anyway, there's a, a little bit of a start on that. But we, we go with what is required to take their pain away, not talking about comorbidities for a moment. Right. And uh, I, I don't know what the answer is until we have that person in front of us and we go with the assessment.
1: Right. I want to talk about strength a little bit. So you love the kettlebell swing. I, I mean, at least I've heard you on Strong First talk about that you love the kettlebell swing. I too love the kettlebell swing. Can you talk about. I guess why, why you think it's such a powerful exercise, maybe something in like the, the building of tension, the relaxation, the, the floats, maybe some of the mechanics. Can you just talk about why <laughs> you love the kettlebell swing? Cause I've heard you mention on other podcasts, you're like, it's a, it's a great tool.
0: Yes, it is a great tool, but like every tool, there's a time to use it and a time to avoid it. So in some people, it will cause their pain, and in others, it's the secret sauce. So I believe we were the first to really measure the mechanics in terms of tissue loads, muscle activation, et cetera, of the swing. So if I can riff on that whole idea uh, for just a moment. Please. Think of a deadlift. When a person hip hinges and starts to pull a barbell, there is a ratio of compression down the spine with shear. The load is shearing the ribcage forward on the pelvis. But the facet joints and the muscle architecture have Lines of direction to support that normal lifting ratio of compression to shear. Well, think of the kettlebell swing. Let's start at the bottom of the swing, and basically, the ratio of compression to shear is what we would call normal. But as the kettlebell swings, so it's now top dead center horizontal, that now changes the ratio. It's much more shear than compression, but compression is stabilizing to a joint. You know, think you distract a shoulder, you destabilize it. You, you suck in a shoulder, it, it stabilizes it. So it's the same thing for a spine. So in or if if we have a, a back pained person and we want to challenge pulsing strength, the kettlebell swing is a fabulous exercise. It's a, a, a posterior chain exercise. It involves the movement of a of a perfect hip hinge. But When you measure it, it it creates a pulse up the backside and then a relaxation and then control as the kettlebell is is swung and and lowered, which is a very translatable athletic engram as we call that pattern of movement with muscle activation. So it's a fabulous trainer for that. However, we would then do a shear test on the person wanting to be a candidate And the shear test will show us if their spine is tolerant of that shear. And if it isn't, I can almost predict that within a week or so, they're going to say, you know what, the kettlebell swings are starting to tweak my back. Mm -hmm. Now, when I was a younger man, I've known Pavel for quite a number of years now. He's a wonderful friend. Pavel is the chair of of Strong First, uh, who really is the Russian who introduced kettlebells to the U.S., uh, for your listenership that isn't aware. So I would have been probably in my early 40s mid-40s, I guess, when I first met Pavel, I had some spine instability at a a couple of lower joints. And I loved the swing. However, after a couple of weeks, my back would get a bit tweaky and I'd have to uh, lay off a little bit. Well, since that time, nature has gristled up my back and I'm 63 and I feel fabulous. I have zero pain. I've just got my training dialed in now. And as I said, I just feel wonderful. However, back then... I would really have to constrain my kettlebell swings Mm. and use appropriate techniques. So you're aware of Pavel when he coaches it. Now he's not doing it for back pain. He's doing it to enhance athleticism and, and all the rest of it, but he has Sometimes he uses hard style, which as he swings the kettlebell through, he then pulses at the very end into what what we would call a very Okinawan karate strength technique. That is a stabilizing technique that he uses to handle the shear at the top of the uh, swing. I couldn't move my spine into that position because I had a, a, a fissured disc bolt at that time. It, it's all gristled up now, but that would tweak me. So instead we would now, If I had me as a client today, I would, and the person really benefited from the swing, except they got tweaky, I would use a slightly different stiffening technique. It would be a pure hip hinge and the spine doesn't move and even more stiffness at the top of the swing, but not in the pulsed Okinawan strength spine flexion technique, or We'd just limit the volume, or we'd say no. For now, we're going to avoid the swing until you build sufficient shear load tolerance. Mm. But there's a, a bit of a riff on the science behind it and uh, how you might choose whether it is appropriate for the person in front of you or not.
1: Yeah, you know, you talk about you were the first to measure. Can you talk about, just for people who don't know your work or have read the literature? Can you give like a little visual of like, what does measuring, what does that look like?
0: Right. Well, we had uh, two laboratories at the university. That particular one was where we took real living people and we instrumented them. So we would measure their muscles activating. We would measure ligament and disc strain. We would monitor their three-dimensional ranges of motion through all of the joints. If, If anyone has seen the movie Avatar, how they filmed Avatar was they had real live human actors and they put markers all over them. And then infrared cameras, we had a dozen of them in different locations, see all those coordinates of the markers on the actor, uh, reconstruct them in 3D space, and then drive the Avatar, which is basically a stick man of that person rendered with skin and, and whatnot. I don't know if you know, but we had exactly the same Vicon system as they used in the uh, Avatar. So then we build the avatar of that person. So now we have we put on their muscles. We know how their avatar muscles are shaped, and they're all on there through we, we we sliced up their MRIs and reconstructed their their own muscles. So as they moved, we would measure how they moved their muscles and how they. Stressed their discs and ligaments, etc., because of the movements that they chose. Mm-hmm. And people don't do the same thing, like the same task with exactly the same movement pattern. They vary their movement patterns, and we would measure what is wise and unwise, what is painful and what is painless, what creates more athleticism, what doesn't, and and it was a quite a precise way of showing us what caused their pain what caused their inefficiencies and caused them to get tired faster. But it also showed us what we could recommend to them as, as to what would be ideal. So that's how we measured people and parlayed that into being quite precise on what we would coach.
1: Yeah. Do you think there are some common maybe myths about low back pain? I think, you know, you talk about how in your forties, you know, after a couple of weeks of kettlebell swings, You would feel some tweaks, and now at sixty three, you feel amazing. You know, I think I do. (laughs) Yeah, I think some of the general—that's amazing. Some of the general population thinks, oh, as I age, oh, I'm feeling aging pains, or you know what I mean. So, are there to me that's kind of like a a common myth of low back pain? Do you have any others that lots of them come across? (laughs) You gotta debunk.
0: (laughs) Well. Let's stay in the back pain world for a yeah. minute. If someone reads the scientific literature, they will come across all of these studies done on nonspecific low back pain. There's no such thing. Have you ever heard of nonspecific leg pain? How would you treat non-specific leg pain? Nothing works. Of course. So this idea of there being non-specific back pain, we must not put up with this. It's a myth. And I think we should ban all, all science done on nonspecific back pain. It's very specific. And once we subcategorize it, then all of a sudden patterns emerge. For example, people say, oh, posture doesn't matter. But the studies are on nonspecific back pain. However, if you subcategorize a person's pain trigger, for example, if they are flexion intolerant and they sit in flexion, guess what? posture really matters. Let's say the person is extension intolerant and they sit in extension. Guess what? Posture really matters. So once we get past that myth that there's nonspecific pain, all of a sudden the world opens up in terms of specific cause and effect for the individual who's in front of you. Have you heard of back pain of onsidious onset?
1: I have heard that.
0: So this is an unknown mystery of why they have back pain. That just means the person has never had a proper history taking and uh, a thorough assessment. Um, Degenerative disc disease, DVD, there's another huge myth. They don't have a disease. They've got an injured disc. If on MRI, one disc is flatter than all the rest. It's a radiologist's pretty much a garbage term to say that disc is flattened now and there might be a few bone spurs. But the bone spurs show a history of joint instability there. The spurs are at the flattened disc, not at the others. That's an injury. But in our other laboratory, we would take cadaveric spines and we would injure them and we would follow the process of what we did to them physically and then how the images changed. So we had a micro CT machine, we had X-ray. I would work with my colleagues for MRs, uh, et cetera. We had uh, Doppler ultrasound. I mean, we had a lot, a lot of imaging equipment and we would watch the images change. No radiologist has had this education. So people will say, oh, well the images don't correspond to pain. Well, when you assess the person, and then I know what I'm going to see on the imaging, I know exactly what I'm looking for and what is the feature on the MRI that is relevant to their pain and what is the feature that isn't. But it needs a context of of assessing the person. So these are all myths, I suppose. Talking about myself, discogenic pain really dominates 20-, 30-, and 40-year-olds. But the good news is that discogenic pain stiffens out. We get a bit stiffer. So the bad news is it's a little harder to put my socks on in the morning. However, I don't have any pain. <laughs> I feel great. I I can pretty much do whatever I want, although I'm not as strong as I once was. But uh, anyway.
1: I, I wanted to ask you a question because oh. you had mentioned it like really briefly about hypermobility. Yes. Yes. You know, I think there's some thoughts out there that hypermobility isn't a thing. They're just stable. They just need to get more stable. So for example, in my own clinic, I see a lot of women who have autoimmune conditions and then have some tissue laxity or joint instability, not a full Erler Danlos, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, I mean, obviously it depends, right? Because <laughs> of the assessment and the history, but any thoughts on where do you start with that person? Or
0: Well, in my world, it's dominated by, by back pain. People only come to me because they have back pain. Right. So our assessment really is back pain centric. And we determine if the instability or lack of stiffness Stiffness being a good thing in in this case is really associated with their pain, and if it is, we'll have to uh, address that. I think what you're talking about, though, is more of a syndrome. And there are people, there are even genetic populations that have it's much more common to have this general joint laxity. When I first started, you might find this interesting as a young professor, I remember being called as an expert witness in two murder cases. And my scientific colleague was a a woman. She was a professor of forensic anthropology. Now, this was long before DNA testing. We're in the uh, middle 80s. She would look at a skeleton with no hair or skin or anything that would identify the skeleton. And her job was to give an opinion as to where in the world this skeleton came from because of features of the pelvis and the spine. And, and, uh, and I would look at those things and say, wow, those give a great biomechanical advantage to do X. They give a great biomechanical disadvantage to do Y. And now you start to see why if you study martial arts around the world, the martial arts are different because they're so tuned to take advantage of an opponent who has a different architecture and to take great advantage of your own physicality look at cultural dance around the world if if, you know the ukrainian dance where they go right down into the deep pistol position and Mm. kick one leg out in front of one another i mean that perfectly suits the eastern european hip you will not do that in scotland the hips are entirely uh, different. It's a, it's much more of a, a standing strength. It's it's so interesting. Now I'm talking about averages here. So of course there are exceptions to the average, but on genetic average, it's interesting when you when you measure deadlift power from the far western European nations like Ireland and Scotland, the failure usually occurs at the beginning of the pull, getting the weight started off the ground. But once that weight bar passes the knees. They hit second gear and very rarely do they fail at lockout. The more shallow type of hip architecture in Eastern Europe has much more power at the beginning of the pole. The deep squat is so much more powerful. And yet failure, if there's going to be a failure, its tendency is, is at lockout. So it's so interesting that Different people will have different joint laxities because of joint architecture, but also this whole ligamentous integrity is yeah. uh, part of yeah. part of the syndrome as well
1: yeah, I love that. I mean I love that you mentioned like around the world i didn't I've heard you talk about that before, but that didn't come to mind when I was thinking about it. Yeah. I want to just um wrap it up because I want to honor your time because you've worked with a lot of high performers elite athletes is there Anyone that comes to mind that just really blew you away, you're like, "Wow, they just really move well or move optimally, or can really access or harness their strength in this really impressive way."
0: Yes. If you're a world <laughs> they <all> champion, do. <laughs> Yes, if you're yeah. a world champion, you're gifted. you've been touched by the hand of God. you're not normal, and you can't be treated as normal. You've got some gift capacity for training that's out of this world. You've got some neural gift where you're extremely quick. For example, when you measure Olympic weightlifters, I mean the real Olympic ones, uh, they relax their muscles six times faster than the average graduate student. Well, the graduate student is, is one of the more sicker forms of uh, humans. Um, <laughs> however, When an Olympic lifter pulls a bar from the floor, so consider a clean and jerk or or even a snatch lift. Let's take a snatch. They pull a bar with great acceleration off the floor, but then they reach a period where they have to snap under the bar and they have to completely relax to get under the bar because if they don't relax, the stiffness residual in their body slows them down and they can't get into the catch position. So a Olympic lifter has to relax extremely quickly and it's six times faster. So there is an off the chart athleticism in Olympic sprinters. I've measured a gold medal male sprinter. I've measured a silver medal female sprinter at the Olympics and many others. Their ability to pulse Within 70 milliseconds of the gun going off, they're at about 70% contraction pulse. It's out of this world. A normal neurologist would say, "Uh, this isn't possible, McGill. Where did you get this data? Is this a cheetah or some animal? And I say, no, this is the fastest man in the world. And I say this is not humanly possible. And I'll say, well, how many of you have measured the gold medalist? And and they say, well, none of them have. So they don't know what human capability is. Mm-hmm. But this is what you learn from working with the best. The men, I haven't measured any women in the UFC. Do, do you know the fight league, the yeah, MMA league, yeah. UFC? Yeah, sure. I've measured either the UFC champ or They fought for the championship at some time in their life. I think I've measured five of them in different weight divisions, and they also relax five or six times faster. So when they are in a defensive position and they start the arm strike, it's a pulse of muscle through their body. But when muscles contract, they create force and stiffness. You use a lot of muscle. You can't move. It's stiff. So they then have to start with a pulse and then they relax to increase the, what we call closing velocity. That's the velocity of the fist to the target. You have to relax to get maximum velocity. And then when the fist hits the target, they get a second pulse. So they don't hit you with their fist. They actually hit you with their full body turned to granite at that instant in time of the impact. You see pulsing speed is incredibly important. And then I measure the guys with big muscles. The guys with big muscles, they push their punches with muscle. So the impact is spread out over time. It's a soft punch, if you know what I mean by that.
1: So their big muscles are deceiving.
0: They are. (laughs) The killers are the ones who look a little bit more modest. And when you look at the real knockout artists on who can get the right angle with that sharp, pulse relax pulse sequence that I'm talking about Mm -hmm. those are the ones and people think oh I'm going to weight train and and become a knockout artist not necessarily true (laughs) so these are the things that you learn from measuring the great ones you know I've measured the great ones who dunk basketballs in the NBA do you think they have loose hamstrings (laughs) I mean there's a myth for you
1: Yeah, yeah. No,
0: they're not. They're springs. They're the springs that they bounce off. So they have a core of iron. So their hips create the hammer, the pulse, and the hammer hits a stone, which is their core, and they fly through the air. So when they get a little older and their knees aren't quite what they're up to, we we train more core stiffness and more hip explosive power to to get back their dunk. I think you know? it's
1: interesting how maybe just from a general population, the word stiffness has such a negative connotation, but is such, it's essential to move. I don't know. That just came up. I was just thinking about that as you were yeah, talking.
0: Yeah. No, t- stiffness is your spring. It's and your spring. so many athletes don't test out to be the strongest when you measure them. they test out to be the best elastic athletes. So they're really clever at storing and recovering elastic energy with a muscle pulse. And that is governed by F equals KX, K being the stiffness. So I'm using stiffness in a very physical, scientific way, but it is, we are springs. So when you measure the most efficient marathoners, they have springs in their Achilles, springs in their foot complex, uh, this whole world of fascia, which is another, maybe that's another podcast, but this elasticity is. Yeah. Uh, you got me all excited now. Not too many people do that.
1: <laughs> I'm going I'm to ask you one more question. I think, I think about this a lot. What makes someone, right, because training and athleticism is a stressor. What makes some of the people that are the world's greats resilient? Because I think, you know, there's just across the general population, they can experience a certain stressor and can feel like they're falling apart. And then someone else can experience tremendous amounts of stress. Like I think of the Navy SEALs, right? And they are resilient. And I'm just wondering in your work with people who Are the greatest of what they do in the world, and you've measured them. Is there any factors that come to mind that are across the board, maybe consistent in terms of their resiliency to stress? Because when I think of the people who train a lot and hard and are striving for that goal, it's a stressor every single day. So is there any sort of consistency in terms of resiliency?
0: Absolutely. Number one, choose your parents. To be the world's best and train like one, you have to be touched by the hand of God. Mm -hmm. Then you match your sport or your activity to your body. So you will never train a St. Bernard to win at the Greyhound track. It's not possible. You will break the dog. So some people do this. They think, oh, I'm going to be the greatest Olympic lifter. And they've got deep hip sockets. It's not going to happen. They're going to need hip replacement. The great athletes obviously we're touched by the hand of God. They've chosen the sport that matches their body and then they build training capacity. So some of them have to move well. I can think of some hockey players, for example, in the NHL playing right now, they don't tie their own skates. They have an open Fisher disc bulge, which many people think that's the kiss of death no it isn't it just needs to be appropriately treated so they can't do full flexion and and tie their skates because that would make them fragile and they've experienced this in the game they'll have an acute disc episode that's not good i also have a, a fighter right now in the in the ufc who's exactly the same so if he mitigates that by moving appropriately throughout the day he builds training capacity. And he now is able to train through that discipline. I will also say good coaching is paramount. Mm. Take a power lifter, a lot of people get. They're back injured doing deadlifts because they train deadlifts three times a week. Wait a second. Look at the world's best power lifters. They might do a heavy deadlift session one day per week, and then they use the next five or six days to really scaffold on the bone that they've stimulated to adapt, but failure to allow adaptation. On the internet, you see all kinds of bravado. Oh, on my day off, I only knocked out 20 Olympic lifts and ran 5k or something like that, which is just stupid because you only train to cause adaptation when you're resting. If you don't rest, the previous stimulus that you created is mitigated. You just... Caused more cumulative damage. If you want muscle to grow, you break it down. That's what bodybuilding is. And if you keep breaking it down and never rest, you will end up with injury. It's just a start. I mean, we, you, we could create a book together on uh, creating the resilient person and, and all of that capacity to train. But uh, not paying enough attention to rest, which allows the tissues to adapt, is another big impediment.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It has been such a pleasure to sit down and chat with you. Where can people find you?
0: Yes, I'm not a social media person. I I I don't know how to sign on to that stuff. My daughter apparently does it, and people tell me she does okay at it. But anyway, our website is the is the main information source. So that's backfitpro.com, just as it sounds be back fit pro. Yeah. And uh, on there, we have two portals, one for clinicians. And if they're interested in any of our courses or reading materials or whatnot, they will find them there together with things like podcasts and and whatnot. But the portal for people with back pain helps them find an approved clinician who knows our uh, approaches. There's different articles and whatnot lots of podcasts and lay public articles I've written. I believe my full CV I've published over 250 uh, medical publications, so they can see them there. So anyway, it's, it's basically the website.
1: Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so well, much.
0: Yeah, Emily, thanks. I, I see why you're good at what you do. You, you're very thoughtful and, and you pull out uh, things from your uh, guests. So thank you very much for all you do. And you're on for that coffee when I get to meet you. Yes,
1: it's on. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to muscle medicine podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing muscle medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.